I was sitting in my office in Robinson, Illinois. This is about 25 years ago now. My desk started shaking. In fact, uh, the whole room started moving, and it was one of the freakiest feelings I had ever had. We had an oil refinery in town. I thought it had blown up, and I ran out the front door of the church to see if I could see any smoke or flames coming from over by the refinery, but it was an earthquake tremor. How many of you have experienced an earthquake tremor? Yeah, I think here in the Midwest we had one a few years ago. Well, that one in Robinson, an article came out shortly after that, said, unprepared Midwest facing giant earthquake. And in the article, it said that the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 has become a part of American lore, but the biggest quakes in the United States have actually been in the Midwest. Three of them in the 1800s were all larger than that San Francisco quake. And then the article said, it will happen again. No one knows exactly when, but there will be a major earthquake in the Midwest someday. And it says that people in the Midwest are not ready. They have a false sense of security. It said, we're trying to operate on a patient who's convinced he's not ill. So do you have earthquake insurance? Because it's coming. Earthquakes are one of the signs, one of the reminders that this earth is not eternal. And that's exactly what Isaiah and the prophets and eventually Jesus are trying to do, telling us that someday this world is coming to an end, a final judgment. Our text this morning is Isaiah 24, if you want to turn to that. Uh, it's really the culmination of 24 chapters of judgment. Isaiah 1 through 12 are warnings to Jerusalem and Judah, God's people who have turned from him. And then 13 through 23 are warnings against the surrounding nations who'd already rejected God, like Babylon, Moab, Syria, Egypt, Edom, Arabia. The whole Middle East is facing judgment. And then Isaiah 24 is kind of a culmination and a summary of it all, and it's warnings concerning the whole earth. All creation will be destroyed. And Isaiah comes back to this over and over and over and over and on and on and on and on. And it's almost irritating and wears you out how much he talks about the coming destruction and the destruction of these nations and goes on and on. It's so tedious. And the main reason I think he goes on and on and on, I don't know if there's a main reason, but one reason is, We don't get it. The prophets are God's nags. And we hear these words over and over and over and over. The world is going to end. Don't live for this world. Don't trust in this world. But we still do it. I do it. It's so easy to be seduced into living for today and to ignore the coming earthquake. Now, the Bible is filled with predictions and warnings over and over. This world's going to be destroyed. And I know. This isn't always what we want to hear. This isn't the most pleasant message. So much preaching today. You know, we got to have fun and be happy. And we want preaching to be relevant and how to live for today. Help me be a better dad and a better husband and a better wife and a better employee, a better uh, child, you know, a better person. How to use my money way, wisely and grow old gracefully. And all those things are very important and very relevant. We want to be our best for Jesus But is there anything more relevant than our destiny? And if all we talk about is the here and now, and how to be a better person, and our relationships, and how to do better in life, without the big picture, all this other stuff is irrelevant. And talking about all these other issues while ignoring the final day is like what someone said, showing people how to overcome seasickness while on the Titanic. Well, well, sure, we won't overcome the seasickness, but that's not the big issue. Last week, we talked about how our view of the future impacts how we live in the present. And one example of this, in the early 20th century, about 100 years ago, 
there was a tremendous expectation of the end of the world by several church groups. And because of their view of the nearness of the end, some churches banned things like chewing gum, eating pork, catfish, ice cream, drinking coffee and tea, soda pop, wearing neckties, wedding rings, playing sports, watching parades. None of that was allowed in these churches because with such a great expectation of the imminent return of the Lord, you don't want to get caught up in frivolity. Because Jesus is coming, and it's going to be real soon, you don't want to get caught up in trivial pursuit. There's been other times when people would actually get up on their rooftop, because they knew this is the day the Lord is coming, and they would get up there, they'd sell all their possessions, get up on the rooftop and wait for Him to come. And that's really a perverted overemphasis on the second coming. People who think they have, have it figured out when it's going to happen, and it's kind of like figuring out when an earthquake's going to happen. We know it's going to happen, but we really don't know when. And today, I think we've gone way the other way and lost any sense of nearness and urgency. And throughout history, it's always been that, like a pendulum, too much obsession with the second coming, and then people become weird and do weird things, or they ignore the second coming and become apathetic. And we need to find the biblical emphasis without going crazy one way or the other. So Isaiah 24 There's five assertions about God's final judgment that ought to shape our thinking and our behavior today. Verse 1 says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priests as for people, for the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for creditor as for debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken His word. Notice the adverbs there at the end and the adjectives. Completely laid waste, totally plundered. Final judgment will bring about the total destruction of the earth. And the prevailing mood today is that this world and matter are eternal. It's going to go on and on and on. And Isaiah tells us the world is not eternal. Also notice that rank, wealth, power are no special significance. The priest and the king will not fare any better than the servant. The last day will be the great equalizer. And Isaiah is trying to paint a picture that this beautiful earth in which we live in, this teeming, abundant, vivacious earth, will become an abandoned scrap heap when God is finished with it. Why? Why is he going to do this? Verse 5. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Earth is defiled by its people. The word defiled there, by the way, it can be translated polluted. And, of course, we know there's a lot of concern with pollution today, the air and the land and the, and the water. But there are other ways to pollute the earth. They have disobeyed and violated statues and broken the everlasting covenant. Rebellion against God pollutes the earth. Dishonesty pollutes. Prejudice, cheating others, immorality. They're every bit as deadly to the earth as too much sewage and too many phosphates. Physically, pollution, yeah, but worse is the spiritual pollution. So judgment on the earth is not an arbitrary punishment by a mean and angry God any more than diphtheria and typhoid is a punishment for drinking polluted water. Okay? It's the natural consequences of pollution. And so verse 6, the earth is cursed. Now, judgment's twofold. We need to understand this. First of all, it is something that happens now. People and cultures pay for the consequences of sin in this life. There's a built-in justice we see people all the time ruin their lives 
and you feel sorry and feel terrible for them, but they've broken some spiritual laws. I see it in my life. When I sin, I usually suffer, or someone close to me suffers. When a nation gets further and further from God, you see decline set in. It's just a natural consequence. But judgment now is incomplete. There's still a lot of injustice. Wicked people still prosper. Good people still struggle. There's a lot of inequities. Uh, Many of us get away with our sin. At least we think we do. And so there's a second phase that judgment is something that happens later. What takes place in part now will be complete in the last day. Now, when I read Isaiah 24, I thought of an old house we lived in back in Modesto, Illinois, as our student ministry a long time ago. We had little preschoolers then. And the natural tendency, as you know, for a house is to deteriorate. And this house was doing just that. The paint was cracking on the windows, and the windows were big and old. You could feel a breeze coming through the house when it was windy outside. You ever live in a house like that? It was a glorified tent, really. The bathroom was moldy and cracking at the seams. The carpet was wearing out. We had green and blue shag. Had about 18 strands per square foot and had a rake. You remember those? You're old enough to remember a rake for the shag carpet? Mouse holes in the kitchen wall. At night, we could see, hear them running across the ceiling. It was not a dream house. And when things get so bad in a house, you know, you start tearing out and replacing. The, the church replaced the carpet when we were there. They put in a new septic tank. That was another story. Uh, but it was still an old, deteriorating house. And so eventually the house got so old, so decrepit, they tore it down completely in order to build a new one after we left, of course. And so, so this new preacher gets a brand new, beautiful house. Well, it's the same thing with the earth. Right now, there's a partial deterioration going on, a sporadic thing. The book of Romans says creation is in being in pain, like in the pain of childbirth. It, it's aching. But the earth is still useful, there's still a lot of beauty to it, still a lot of production to it, but someday this earth will be torn down completely and make way for a new heaven and a new earth, a new parsonage for us to live in, a new universe. So judgment on the earth is God's cleansing. The old has to be destroyed. Going on, verse 7. The new wine drives up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are still. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. The picture here is a drunken celebration. A big party that the culture is having has stopped. In place of the happy, carefree abundance and the mindless parting, we have a world whose merriment has ceased. And instead of joking and laughter, there's sighs and groans. Final judgment will bring an end to all selfish indulgence. The parties, the material abundance, the selfish pleasures, done. And this is not what we want to hear. I know we don't want to hear a lot about judgment and warning and threats, but it is Bible and truth. And some would ask, well, how does this fit in with this loving God? You know, we, you know, our culture wants to hear about a loving and gracious God. And how can a loving, gracious God be so destructive? And it seems like he's angry. And in times in the Bible, it does talk about him being angry. Let me ask, what's the alternative to the anger of God? Are anger and love opposites? Who do you get most angry at? I'm guessing for many of you, Not today, hopefully with Valentine's. But if you're married, you get angry with your spouse once in a while. Now, if you're single, maybe it's a best friend or family member. 
If you have kids, you probably get angry at your kids once in a while, and your kids probably get angry with you. You get angry to those who are closest to you. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Of course not. God's anger is actually a sign that He cares deeply. The opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. Apathy says, well, let them go the way they want to go. Let them go to hell. That's their business. You know, I'm not going to interfere with their lives. Who cares? You want that kind of God? So whenever the biblical picture of a holy God who gets angry and seems that's old-fashioned and scary, try to imagine something a whole lot worse than that, and that's an apathetic God who doesn't care. What kind of world would we live in if God did not care? So he cares enough to get angry and do something about it. And then verse 14 It's a surprising, dramatic shift. So far, it's been bad news and judgment. The singing's going to stop. The coming earthquake. Verse 14 says, They raise their voices and they shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing. Glory to the righteous one. All of a sudden, they're singing, praise God for this destruction and for the coming earthquake and for his anger. Praise God for judgment. And the change of tone, it's all-encompassing. East, west, ends of the earth, the islands include everyone, the whole creation is praising God. How can we sing in the midst of this devastation? It looks like final judgment will bring joy to the redeemed. A lot of negative judgment and sin and destruction But here, there's a momentary break in the darkness. The drunken singing stops and we're given a glimpse of another kind of singing. This is the only part of the chapter, two and a half verses out of the whole chapter. Now, I've noticed that Mount Pulaski loves justice. When I go to ball games and the ref makes a call that is questionable, I've noticed the fans of Mount Pulaski are very justice-oriented. They want it to be right. And when there's justice... We rejoice. Rejoice. Well, that's the way it should be. We all have a sense of right and wrong. Well, the coming earthquake is about justice. But I think the bigger reason for joy is that judgment means that the day of the Lord is finally here. The destruction means no more evil, no more poverty, no more tears, no more child pornography, no more Democrats (laughs) or Republicans. No more debates. Did you see those debates this last week? None none of that anymore. No more funerals. The judgment is preparing the way for a new heaven and a new new earth, a new parsonage to live in. I'm going to tell you about a dream I had. Now, some are real. This one wasn't really real. And this is kind of funny, but you're not going to think it's funny because it's an old bad joke. But laugh anyway, please. I I dreamt that Michael Wakeman, Kevin Letterly, and Tim Dybert all died and were standing before the gates of heaven. And an angel is there, and when they get to the gate, the angel informs them that there will be a little quiz, a little test for them to get in. They each have to answer, and the difficulty of the question is based on the kind of life they lived on earth. And he says to Micah, who's a pretty good holy man, and gave him a pretty easy question, what was the name of the ship that crashed into the iceberg and sank all its passengers? Micah says, well, that's easy, it's the Titanic. And the angel says, go ahead, go into the gate. So the angel turns to Kevin, knowing that he's not terrible, but he can be a little ornery, and picks on the preacher once in a time, once in a while, and he decides uh, the question will be a little harder for him. And the angel says, how many people died when the Titanic went down? And Kevin's pretty smart, but he doesn't know exactly. But he has a general idea, so he guesses. 
1,228 people. Amazingly, he was right. And the angel says, I can't believe you guessed it right, but yeah, 1,228 people died on the Titanic, go on in. So Kevin was lucky to get in. Angel turns to Tim Dybert and says two words, name them. (laughs) Well, hopefully, we're all looking forward to the day of the Lord. Now, some of you are looking forward to retirement. Some of you might be looking forward to getting married. Some of you might be looking forward to having kids. Some of you might be looking forward to having the kids leave. We all are looking forward to things. But I want to tell you, don't set your sights so low. It's okay to look forward to some of these things, but there's a much better life to look forward to. The coming judgment brings joy to the redeemed. I can't wait. Now, when I was younger, I'll just be honest, I wasn't so excited about Jesus coming right away. I said, Lord, I'd like to have a little bit of life yet. I'd like to get married. I'd like to have kids. And, you know, you can come a little later. You know, that's okay. Not anymore. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. Are you ready? Do you rejoice that all evil will be done away with and will be made completely whole? I'm so tired of my own sin. Tired of it. Verse 17. Tear and pit and snare await you, people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are open. The foundation of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violent shaken. shaken. Sounds like an earthquake. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall in a pit. Whoever crawls out of the pit will go into the snare. What's he saying? There will be no escape. Like an earthquake, no one can dodge it, avoid it. Verse 19, this once strong, dependable earth is broken up. It's splintering, tottering like a drunk and finally collapsing. People will flee and there will be no escape. I want to go over to 2 Peter. This is not just Old Testament teaching. New Testament, 2 Peter says, Above all, more important than anything else, above all, you must understand, you got to get this. If we don't get this, we don't get it. That in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it is since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by the water. And by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, doubters and scoffers are going to say, where's this coming he promised? The world's been going on for centuries. Why all this doom and gloom? Come on. And Peter says they deliberately forget. God did it once. And he's going to do it again, this time with fire. And I would think today, what we know of science and the universe, we should recognize the fragile nature of this globe and this cosmos. Whatever you believe about the Earth's origin, I don't see how anyone can believe this planet has infinite duration. I don't know how anyone can believe that. The world is temporary. Back to Isaiah, verse 21. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. God's enemy is going to be cast into prison. The sun and the moon and the stars in that culture were the gods. He's not just talking about heavenly 
bodies, these are actually gods, the powers of the heavens above. They're brought to their knees and God Almighty will be the king. So number five, final judgment will result in the Lord's reign. So the overriding theme of the first half of Isaiah is the triumph of God over those who rebel. God is the sovereign actor in history. And all those who have exalted themselves against this God can expect to be brought down. So there's two questions we have to ask and answer today. Do we believe this? Christianity is so today-focused and now-oriented, got to be relevant. We have forgotten the future, as Peter talks about. Are we like the unprepared Midwest for the coming earthquake? In 1992, there was another headline about California. Front page read, Shaken scientists call California's recent quakes the final warnings. Now, that was 1992. It said, data points to a quake of eight or greater, popularly called the big one. And the article says, everyone agrees this was the final warning. Now, that was 1992, and that was about three years after the World Series quake in Oakland. Why isn't anyone moving out of California? They're being warned. They know it's coming. But Californians live as if to say, ah, where's this big one they promised? And we're warned of another coming earthquake by a greater expert, God. Do we believe it? Here's the second question. 2 Peter 3.11 asks this question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How should we then live? If Scripture is true, and if this world is temporary, and if there is a coming earthquake, and if I believe it, what kind of church should this be? What should be dominating our thoughts and our behavior and attitude and desires and our programming? What kind of preacher should I be? If all this is temporary, since this destruction is coming and we will give an account, what should we be teaching our kids? What should be the dominating concern for my friends? What kind of a neighbor should I be or co-worker? What should be my overriding concern for them if this is true? Where should my priorities be? See, this is all temporary. And we go on, we go back to work, we go to our games, we eat out, we just, just kind of live life and everything. I have a theory that all evil is because of a this-worldly orientation. I think it can show that in the New Testament. All sin, gossip, complaining, selfishness, arrogance, apathy, worry, incest, stealing, murder, whatever you name the sin, is because we have forgotten the big picture. We think it doesn't matter. We'll get away with it. There is no accounting. When churches become inward-focused and pettiness reigns, it's just amazing what churches can argue about. You know, We've forgotten the big picture. Can I confess something? I want to confess my pettiness. This is actually embarrassing. I wish, now we have donut time before Sunday school for those who don't know this, and we used to cut the donuts in half. We no longer cut the donuts in half. And so now I have to eat a whole one when I get a donut. It's just not as healthy. And I want us to know who made that decision to cut the donuts in, not in half. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff we get involved in when don't, we don't see the big picture. Who cares? When you see the big picture, most of the stuff we get all upset, eh, we're at a ball game, eh, who cares? These are not important things. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? The earthquake is coming. Now, 
That's not the end of the story. We're only to chapter 24. 15 more chapters, actually, of judgment is going to happen in Isaiah. So the first 39 chapters are heavy on warnings and the coming threat. Judah and Israel is going to pay the consequences of the sin. The earth is going to be destroyed, but that's not the end. Starting in chapter 40, and we're going to go to that next week, there's hope, there's salvation. God says comfort, have, be, have comfort. God will save his people. So the first half of Isaiah is dominated more by judgment. The second half is dominated more by redemption. Jesus is coming to redeem us, and part of that redemption is the earthquake. So we can sing in anticipation of that day. No more poverty, no more birth defects. No more cancer, no more mental illness, no more depression or divorce or conflict, no more abortions, no more growing old, no more nursing homes or hospitals, no more orphanages. It's gone. Jesus came to destroy the bad, including the bad in your life and the bad in this church and the bad in this world. How ought we to live? Let's pray. Lord, this is pretty heavy stuff. Um, but it really brings a certain amount of comfort, too, because we really don't want this world to continue on and on and on. We really do want justice. We do want evil to finally be destroyed, and we do look forward to a new parsonage, a new home that will not deteriorate and will not grow old. And I pray you'll help us to live in such a way that anticipates the future, live in a way that realizes so many things in this life just are inconsequential in the whole scope of things. Open our eyes. Help us to see clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.